0: Well, Julie and I uh, avidly watched the Netflix series, uh, The Crown, uh, and we just finished the final season a few weeks ago. We were kind of behind the times a little bit. And and while we wouldn't call ourselves Royals Fanatics, unless it's the Kansas City Royals uh, by any means, uh, we did actually really enjoy the show. I was more interested in, in the history of it and, and all that was transpiring there. And Julie was more interested in the behind-the-scenes aspect. She really enjoyed the dramatized imaginings of what it was like to actually be with Queen Elizabeth as you know she was doing her queening. Um, I, I think that's part of why we both enjoyed the West Wing so much, an old television show. We, we felt like it kind of gave us some insight into what it was like to be with the president. And I think most people are intrigued uh, by that kind of thing on, on some level. We all wonder what it would be like to spend the day with the person in power, a person in power, to observe how they went about their day, maybe learn a a little bit more about what they are all about. Our passage today gives us something of that experience. If you would please find Luke chapter 4 in your copy of God's Word, Luke chapter 4 and find verse 31. Uh, Today we are going to spend a day with a king, The King. We're going to spend a day, 24 hours, with Jesus as he just goes through his activities. And in doing so, we are going to do more than just kind of satisfy our curiosity. We're going to find out what it means when we say that Jesus is our King. And to do this, it will help to remember from our passage last week that Jesus had announced to the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown, that his arrival represented the arrival of the kingdom of God. Everything that Jesus does after that then is as king of that kingdom. And so I hope you found Luke 4 verse 31. Let's walk through this together and then think about it a little bit. Verse 31, and he went to Capernaum. A city in Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Uh, So this Sabbath day starts with Jesus teaching in the synagogue. And at this point in Jesus' ministry, it's important to remember, he was kind of the hot thing. The the traveling rabbi who everyone everyone wanted to hear teach when he came to town. So he's teaching, and then this happens. So, uh, a demon is cast out. Now, there's debate uh, among Bible scholars if some of what appeared uh, to first century eyes as demon possession was really just severe mental illness. And so, there is debate among Bible scholars uh, about what appeared to first century eyes as Jesus casting out a demon. In fact, it might have just really been Jesus healing of mental illness. And in most cases... I don't think that really matters all that much. I I think Jesus' power over whatever it was and the outcome in the life of the afflicted person is what matters. But here we clearly have a case of demonic possession. The demon speaks to Jesus and makes a declaration concerning him that uh, those in the corporeal world had not yet discerned that Jesus is the Holy One of God, that Jesus is the Messiah. So Jesus speaks directly to the demon, he rebukes him, and with the word the demon comes out of the man, leaving him unharmed. Now, if something like that happened here at Blue Valley on Sunday morning, this might be the response. Look at verse 36, and they were all amazed, and they said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out, and reports about him went into every place in the surrounding region. All right, so that's the that's the first scene, that's the first Part of, of his day, but there's something I want you to do before we move on to the next event in his day. I want you, if you're comfortable doing this, not everybody is, I want you, if you're comfortable doing this, to circle a word that appears twice in that section that we just read. I want you to circle in verse 32 the word of authority, and then I also want you to circle that same word in verse 36, There's a reason I want you to circle the word authority, which we'll get to in a bit. But right now, I want you to look at what happens next. Look at verse 38. And he arose, and he left the synagogue, and entered Simon's house. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill and, and with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. Would you heal her? Would you address her affliction? And he stood over her, and he rebuked the fever. And it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now you may not have noticed it yet, but at this point in Luke's retelling of Christ's life, the the twelve disciples have not been called to come alongside him in his ministry. However, clearly by this point, Jesus knows at least some of them because the Simon who is mentioned here is Peter, a- and Jesus goes into his house and he heals his mother-in-law of a fever. A- and And on a side note, this is the first mention by Luke of what will. Be be a recurring theme for him, the importance of women in Christ's inner circle. Luke's audience wouldn't have viewed what she is doing, serving as degrading servitude, but instead the response of joyful gratitude, and he'll bring this kind of elevation of women in his midst over and over and over again as we go through Luke. But for right now, let's continue reading. Look at verse 40. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had, uh, who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to Him, and He laid His hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many crying, and, and this is legitimate, uh, no bones about it demon possession, because they all came out crying, you are the Son of God. But He rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. So Jesus finishes uh, the first part of his day uh, with uh, a day that started with him teaching in the synagogue with with more healing and and more deliverance from demonic possession. And demons continue to attempt to make Jesus' identity known. And as they do, Jesus continues to rebuke them into silence, uh, which obviously he's already done in our passage. And so it's reasonable to ask, well, why is he doing that? I mean, isn't that right? I mean, why would he not be allowing them to to tell others who he really was? And probably the, the best understanding is that Jesus knew that most who would follow him as their king solely on the basis of the power he demonstrated would fall away from him when the journey following him led them to the cross. Uh, The demonic acknowledgement of Christ's identity then was an attempt to kind of short-circuit the plan of redemption, which is exactly what Satan tried to do when he tempted Jesus to perform miraculous feats. Do these things, he's essentially saying to Jesus, and you can't avoid the cross. That's what Satan and the demons were attempting to do, and Jesus therefore is commanding them to be silent. So that's the end of the day. Let's Look what happened the next morning. Verse 42. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So the people of Capernaum, which is north of Jerusalem, had just experienced a very eventful 24 hours. And they wanted more. They wanted more of Jesus for themselves. But Jesus knew that the message of the kingdom must continue to spread. And off he went to announce the good news of that kingdom to other towns, other synagogues, and to other people. So Jesus spent his 24-hour day confirming the arrival of, of the kingdom of God in himself through his ministry of teaching, deliverance, and healing, proving that what he said in Nazareth was true. His life did represent the arrival of the long promised day of good news and liberty and healing and deliverance had come. The king And the kingdom had come. That's why this record of this 24-hour day exists right after his announcement that he was beginning his ministry began in Nazareth. Now let's talk a little bit about what we've learned and and understand why we need to spend time with Jesus and this eventful day. Several weeks ago, I came across a study commissioned by the Church of England in partnership with Barna Research to take the spiritual temperature of the UK. And one of the questions asked respondents to choose from a list of words, the word that best described Jesus. Here are the options that were given. Moral, loving, powerful, peaceful, spiritual role model, irrelevant wise, selfish, leader, authentic, judgmental, weak, homophobic, boring, don't know, and none of the above. The top choices, by the way, were spiritual, peaceful, and leader in the UK. But here's my problem with the list, all right? King wasn't even given as an option, Now, now I'd have to get into the weeds of the research to know if it wasn't offered because in the UK, uh, identifying someone as king might have been culturally confusing. But still, it's a big, big miss. Because here's what I've come to understand about Jesus after almost 46 years of following him and 38 years of teaching about him. The secret sauce to understanding not only who Jesus is, but what he demands of us is to understand him primarily as king. In fact, if you do not know Jesus as king, I don't know how you can make a biblical argument that you know him as savior. In Colossians, Paul speaks of salvation in this way. He, was, he delivered you from the domain of darkness and has transferred you to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Salvation, Paul says in Colossians, is being transferred to the kingdom of Jesus. So to understand salvation as as mere profession or belief, that has no bearing on your life being lived out under the rule of Jesus is to not only misunderstand salvation, I believe, listen to me, it is to not have salvation. So then let's ask ourselves in closing what this day in the life of our king tells us about living with him as our king. Doing that... We will see first that it means we must surrender to the king's authority. All right, a few minutes ago, I had just circled two verses containing the word of authority. And the reason I did that was because they show us how two realms of our lives fall under this rule, under his authority the realm of belief and the realm of fear. You see, those present in the synagogue that day marveled at the authority of his teaching. Now, it's very unusual for Luke to pair the word authority and teaching. In fact, in the over 20 times that he uses the word authority in the book of Luke and its companion book, the book of Acts, this is the only time he uses it to describe Jesus' Teaching, so we need a little bit of help to understand what Luke is meaning here, and 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 it's not all the time helpful. Just kind of a sidebar. It's it's not always helpful to compare gospel accounts to get a real clear picture. In other words, to take a, an, a, an event that is is written in Mark and and recorded in Luke and compare them to get a fully fledged picture. It's really not all that helpful most of the time to do that. But here. Here uh, the book of Mark can help us a little bit because Mark does record this event but here's how he records it in Mark 1:22 for he taught them as one who had authority and not as scribes that's Mark 1:22 so what part of authority uh, means or uh, what what part of what authority means here is that his teaching stood out from those who were teaching. It stood out from the teaching these people were used to, which then leads to the question, what made it stand out? And going back to Luke verse uh, chapter 4, verse 14, we get an indication of what makes it stand out. Look at verse 14 of Luke 4. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went through all the surrounding country... And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Luke tells us here that Jesus began his teaching ministry in the power of the Spirit. So Jesus' teaching was authoritative in that it was energized by God Himself. His teaching was not powerful because of his rhetorical skills or his ability to communicate. It was authoritative because it was a proclamation of divine truth in the power of the divine. It was God's Word in a way that no other teacher could present the Word of God. That is what made it authoritative. So it makes sense that part of what it means to live under the authority of King Jesus is to accept the authority of His Word and seek to live by it. To live with Jesus as our King, to put it bluntly, means that He can tell us what to think. And in this age in which the world is idolatrous over a whole host of things, looking to those things to tell us what to think, this T-bones us this morning. The the that Jesus as our King can tell us what to think. That's part of what drove our Imago Day series last fall, the image of God series. King Jesus tells his followers, his subjects, what to think about marriage and gender and the poor and the immigrant and race and violence. He also tells us what to think about the incredible offense of sin and the extravagant nature of grace. He tells us what it means to be forgiven and also what it means to forgive. When he is our king, his word becomes the final word on everything in our lives. He is the king of our belief and the final say. Not Twitter, not our news feeds, not our favorite news channel, not our peer group, none of that. He's the final say because he's the king of our belief. And then he is also the ruler of our fears. Every single day, I become more and more convinced that the average follower of Jesus is controlled by their fears far more than they would care to admit, especially in these days when evil seems to run unchecked. But I want you to notice the relationship of Jesus to the evil in the world that was present on that day when uh, with the king look at verse 36 of Luke 4 once again and they were amazed when this demon came out and said to one another what is this word for with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out when the demon a, a, a manifestation of evil came out of this person the people were amazed at Jesus' authority over evil, the evil that controlled this man, and by extension, evil in the world. Those that live under the rule of Jesus should have that same confidence today. Look, I'm I'm not saying that to live in a world of spiraling evil means we just let go and let God. We are called to resist evil, and we are called to champion kingdom ethics as followers of Jesus. But that's not what's going on right now. The church of Jesus Christ in our world is scared. A LifeWay research survey last summer reported that about 69% of U.S. Protestant pastors said their congregations are fearful, and 63% of those pastors reported, listen to this, a specific dread about the future of Christianity at home and in the world. That doesn't speak much of our king, does it? I mean, to live under the authority of the king means that we have a bedrock confidence that we live under his protection and a bedrock confidence that he can and will preserve his kingdom. Saying that you are a Christian who fears for the future of Christianity is an absurd contradiction. All of that to say, living under the rule of King Jesus means to surrender to His authority in our lives, which we've seen in our passage today, means the authority to tell us what to believe and His final authority over the things about which we obsess and worry. It also means to surrender to Christ's ability. What do I mean by that? Simply this, King Jesus alone has the ability to save. There are two confessions made by the demons being exercised by Jesus in this passage, that He is the Holy One of God and that He is the Son of God, which Luke explains as synonyms for Christ in verse 41 of our passage. The word Christ means the Anointed One, means Messiah, which means that they were confessing Him as the one true King. And by implication, in that we see uh, we see something in this entire passage that that Jesus is the only king. There is no other king but him. He was the only king who could provide the deliverance from demonic possession that these people were experiencing. So by extension, living under the rule of King Jesus means to accept him as the only king who has the ability to save. Now, I know I've Already cited surveys twice today, but I think it's been helpful, so here goes number three. Barna Research uh, released a survey in 2021 of people who profess to be born-again Christians. To participate in this survey, you had to answer yes to these two questions. Have you ever made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is important in your life today? If you answered yes, you got the next question. What best describes your belief about what will happen to you after you die. And to be classified as born again, respondents uh, had to answer with a yes to the first question and had to answer something like, I will go to heaven because I've confessed my sins and accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. So, just so we make sure we know what we're talking about here, people who are members of Blue Valley could have participated in this survey. All right? Here's what that survey of folks just like us found. Sixty percent of born-again adults under the age of 40 don't believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven, that he is equal to Muhammad or the Buddha. Remember with me what the Bible teaches. It equates surrendering to Jesus as king with salvation. I mean, I... I'm a human being. I can be wrong on on a lot of stuff. I think this is beyond doubt. I I think that, that surrendering to Jesus as king equates with salvation. So, to put King Jesus for you on par with the teachers of other world religions is to say that he's really no king at all. To claim Jesus as king means that we have surrendered to his ability Alone to bring us salvations. The demons knew that. The demons knew that. Why why can we think we can believe less? And finally, to live under the rule of King Jesus means to surrender to his kingly aim. Or to his goal for salvation. And it is simply this. To serve him and to share him. I've surrendered to Jesus as king. He's got the ability to tell me what to think. He's got the ability uh, to uh, alleviate my fears. I can give them all to him. Uh, I have trusted in only him for my salvation. So then what do I do? I share and I serve. I serve and I share. When Simon Peter's mother-in-law was healed, her first response was what? To serve Jesus. There's no thought of receiving the ministry of Jesus in her mind without ministering to Jesus. So those who live under the rule of Jesus will devote their lives to serving Christ, which we do by serving His church. There is no such thing as a healthy faith without a commitment to serve King Jesus through His church. And then, don't miss what Jesus said to the people when they begged him to stay and continue what they had experienced the previous 24 hours. Verse 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. He was sent for the purpose of proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God to the world. And that's what we are called to do ourselves explicitly as he leaves the world, recorded in the end of the book of Matthew and at the beginning of the book of Acts, to make disciples of all nations. So, we've learned today that we live under Christ's rule when we accept the authority of his teaching, the exclusivity of his salvation, and the purpose of his restoration, which is to serve him and to share him. And while we have only looked... At a fraction of scripture this morning, this is the overwhelming teaching of the entire Bible. The world is in rebellion against its king. Jesus has come to restore the kingdom. And it is restored person by person, subject by subject, when we surrender to him As our king. In closing, then, let's consider whether or not our lives are genuinely and truly reflecting the Lord's rule. Does does Jesus have the right in your life to tell you what to believe in the face of the opposition of your peer group or public opinion? Do we trust Jesus really? To triumph over evil or are we constantly voicing worry and concern and looking to other solutions but Jesus to restore order? Do we believe that Jesus is the exclusive way to God or do we think he's just our way to God? Do Do our lives bear evidence that we are devoted to serving Christ and his church and advancing his message? Or are they spent largely on trivial nonsense? Here's the question. Not are you going to heaven when you die. Not if a long time ago did you pray a prayer and walk an aisle. Here's the question. Are you ready for it? It's simple. Is Jesus your king? Is Jesus your king? That's not only the question of the day. That's the question of eternity, one which we will take to the Lord in prayer right now. Join me, please, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed.